everybody, and welcome to Social Point. I'm Seamus McGinnis, coming back at you after a couple of weeks off here. Things got pretty busy, but we are back with a great episode for you with Sean Goody, who is a senior editor at Jacobin, and I would encourage everybody to check out his piece in Jacobin, Eugene Debs Believed in Socialism Because He Believed in Democracy. That's a great overview of uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today, but it really lays out how a Debsian politics can connect to today and what makes him so important and such an important role model to anyone uh, concerned with the needs of the working class and with any sort of left project today. Uh, and of course, Debs was Bernie Sanders' personal hero and is just very important to any sort of understanding of, of a left project today. So without further ado, here is Sean Goody. So I'm joined today by Jacobin senior editor and longtime contributor, Sean Goody. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on. I, uh, I know that you're writing a biography about Eugene Debs, so we'll jump right into it there. Uh, just sort of for people who haven't heard of him or who aren't aware, what's kind of just the basic overview of what Debs was able to do for, for the left in America and... Uh, just what stands out as some highlights to you? Yeah, so Debs was born in 1855. Um, he lived until 1926. So his life was basically through the Gilded Age uh, in the Progressive Era. Um, and he sort of, he grew up essentially with uh, the rise of industrial capitalism in, in the US. Um, so his, his life, so it's some of his most able biographers have sort of shown his life through that lens. Um, and so he comes out of, uh, he's sort of rooted in American traditions um, in many ways. Um, he, he believes in deeply in kind of the general ideals of American democracy. Um, but he also, um, I, I, sh I should step back, I guess. So he, he, um, he's born in Terre Haute, Indiana and he gets involved uh, he works briefly on the railroad and then he gets involved in trade union politics. He, um, he's a leader of, uh, of one of the brotherhoods, uh, one of the trade unions, um, edits one of the, their magazines. And uh, he's a fairly moderate trade union leader in his early life. And then the kind of uh, uh, horrors really of industrial capitalism um, push, him to the, push him to the left gradually. And so by the mid 1890s, um, there's a, um, Debs is moving left. And uh, one of the main reasons is because of the kind of sheer uh, kind of class conflict and the, um, the kind of despotism of the workplace um, under industrial capitalism. And so one of the, the most pivotal moments is 1894 Pullman strike and Debs is Debs the leader of, of that. Uh, it's a it's a strike of um, the the workers that build the um, luxury uh, sleeping cars for the Pullman company outside of Chicago. And so that's you know it's a really titanic strike in um, in American history, and it also affects Debs quite quite profoundly. He ends up in jail. He sort of he sort of sees the. Um, um, what he has been seen, I guess, in more of more of an acute form, which is the way that uh, capital has control over their workers and also how it controls the state, and so that pushes him towards uh, a kind of socialist politics that that puts democracy really at the center. 
and um, pushes for uh, democratization of the of the political sphere. Um, so you know people can actually have uh, um, ordinary citizens and workers can have control over the political process, and it's not dominated by uh, business leaders and bosses. And also um, in the economic sphere. Um, Workers need to have, uh, you know, control over their own destinies in the economic sphere as well. So Debs basically thinks that you need you need trade unions in the economic sphere. You need militant trade unions um, to go on strike if necessary, but basically just to unite as workers so they have power and they can um, they can push back push back against the bosses in the workplace. And then in the political sphere, workers need to unite and you know. In his view, need to vote for the Socialist Party, um, but basically need need to unite as a class, both in the economic and political realms. Um, so he carries that vision. Once he becomes a socialist, he carries that vision forward for the next few decades of his life, until he uh, dies in 1926. He's jailed. Um, he's jailed uh, during World War One for standing against the war as a socialist, as the entire Socialist Party in the U.S. did. Unlike. Uh, unlike their European counterparts, actually. Um, and so, yeah, that's the general, the kind of, that's a, that's a very quick gloss in his life, but the general vision is one of, of I, I, would, I, I would say, I would sort of sum up Debs's politics as um, uh, the, the three tenets are democracy, internationalism, and class struggle. And class struggle is basically the, the kind of means by which you get more democracy and you you need to unite across uh uh across the workplace lines and you do, and you need to sorry that's a that's a train um you need to you need to unite workers across workplaces and skill levels um and then you also have to unite workers um across borders too which is obviously even a more difficult task but um you, you sort of see Debs' internationalism most clearly uh, during World during World War One, um, when he he sort of speaks out against the war, and not just like as a, a, a basically every Socialist Party leader um, was speaking out against the war, and the rank and file was certainly against the war. But I think Debs was alone in um, really like putting forward a, a, a really true internationalist vision in a way that um, not necessarily the, um, some of the other uh, Socialist Party members and leaders had those commitments, but um, Debs like really put it, put it at the forefront. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's a general gloss of his, of his life and ideology and yeah. So in terms of that, that kind of three component thing uh, in terms of combining class struggle and democracy i know you've talked about sort of linking and sort of placing at odds the the deb's uh six campaigns i believe for president and then um the sanders campaign of 2020 and 2016 uh of being sort of majoritarian and then minoritarian uh, if you could kind of run down where you see the differences there and then um I guess in terms of that opposition, where's kind of the, the middle ground that we can learn from both to, to build out of it in terms of maybe, you know, not purely vote getting and not purely uh, just trying to do class struggle without, uh, without any popular policies by its side. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was towards the end of that piece, I was trying to sort of make an intervention today, um, which I thought was necessary because I, and it, I spent a long time on this piece and I wanted to, I wanted to provide like a gloss of a general gloss in his life and give people a sense of who he was in his, in his politics. Um, but I also, yeah, I, I was trying to think, you know, what actually would a Debsian politics look like today? And that was uh, the kind of way that I was structuring it in my own mind after thinking about it for a while, which is what, what you just referenced, which was, I think um, you don't necessarily have to pick uh, Sanders, you could pick another figure, but I think Sanders today sort of embodies it pretty well. Um, kind of majoritarian style politics um, and Debs, I, I was sort of arguing was more of a, they're both in the democratic socialist tradition, but he's more of a minoritarian because he was quite willing to um, oppose popular majorities and actually put a um, um, more of an emphasis on that, especially you see it in World War One, And he, he sort of, you could, you could, he was more inclined, although he had a mass movement and he was, um, he was never one to cut himself off from mass politics. He believed in mass politics and he believed that the only way that things were really going to change is if like workers united on a really mass scale. But I think it's fair to say that he was more comfortable um, being a dissenter, I guess. Um, and you, again, you see that during World War One, um, where the Socialist Party for a time was um, was not, it was not an unpopular position initially, but once, especially once uh, the US got into the war in 1917, it was very, very unpopular. And then, then you see the repression against Socialist Party, both from vigilantes and from the state itself. And, um, and in that position, Debs was very comfortable um, standing, standing firm and standing um, on the, the principle uh, that he espoused for a long time. Um, so, yeah, so that's one sort of tradition. And it, I guess you could also say Debs was, was not shy about, um, about pushing back against racism within the, within the Socialist Party and just American society more broadly when it wasn't a popular position, obviously, um, because he saw it as central as to, to um, socialist politics. You can't, um, you can't have a socialist politics um, without uh, anti-racist politics. So, um, and I think I might have mentioned a couple other things. He he was also, I mean, this is probably the most unpopular position of all. I mean, he was he was a prison abolitionist in the 1920s. <laughs> so, um, and he, he meant it. I mean, he probably meant it in this the same general way that prison abolitionists meet it today too. Um, but he, he'd sort of experienced prison up close, um, having been a prisoner himself uh, twice. And so he saw it again as, as a kind of degrading um, undemocratic institution. And so even if the majority was, uh, at the very least, if the majority was what, the majority might not have been in favor of like deplorable prison conditions, but it was certainly not, not um, willing to entertain that sort of radical uh, position that Debs was taking. Um, I think 
Bernie represents a tradition of, again, trying to unite workers and um, workers at the, the ballot box and um, and the workplace. And again, the sort of centrality of class struggle to that. But um, the way that I put it in my piece, I think was that he he's much more comfortable and he, and he sees it as his role, I guess, uh, to basically try to unite people around already popular positions that are sort of thwarted by the way that our political system works um, and not necessarily like try to convince people of unpopular opinions or, or really stake out um, uh, or make his name for staking out unpopular positions. Um, and you see this, you definitely see this when it comes to like defunding the police, which uh, which Debs would, I think would take up pretty pretty heartily, but um, I think Bernie for, you know, for understandable reasons knows that there is, that it's not a majoritarian position and that in his view, it's more important to push uh, things like Medicare for all and um, to some extent, the Green New Deal, although less so, but Medicare for all, free college, um, you know, you could, you should, you could put some other stuff in there too, but very clearly, you know, taxing the rich very clearly positions that are already held by the majority and then trying to push through that, that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of finding the middle ground, I think it's always a tension and, and um, there isn't, it's not an easy, uh, you can't really point to, uh, the way that when I'm thinking about it, I, I can sort of feel myself getting pulled back and forth in those, in different directions. Same here, and, yeah. But I think it's like, I think it's not necessarily finding, I think in our head, we should be like, we need to find a middle ground, but also just being aware of that tension is very useful, I think. So we can like have it structured in our minds, the, the, the sort of internal conflicts that we might feel if we have these like general convictions. Um, and, and that feeling of getting pulled in different directions. We, we I think if we have that, at least for me, if we have that sort of framework in place, then we we can better understand like what uh, what the convenient impulses that we might have are, and like what um, what uh, what what might be the best strategy at a particular moment. Um, but I think above all, yeah, it's just like important to have that um, tension in our minds. I guess that it is that it's a reality, and that it's like the way. I mean. I haven't really found a way out of it. So I think it's just an inescapable part of kind of democratic socialist politics. If you're both committed to mass politics and also, you know, have some positions that are quite out of, um, certainly once you get outside of, um, uh, well, I don't know, that's not necessarily true, but but you you have an immediate agenda that in many ways is popular um, but you also have some positions that aren't popular and certainly in the medium to long term, you have positions that don't have majority support. So, um, yeah, so I think just holding that that tension in, in our heads is, is an important thing. I, I do think it's almost kind of a conflict between Debs was taking a more long term view. Of course, he like didn't really have planned, like he didn't really want to go sit in the Oval Office. It was more consciousness raising was the goal and yeah. there's kind of an intersection point there where the sanders campaign i feel like moved i mean personally it was the thing that moved me left and 
was consciousness raising for me. So I think yeah. like the way that maybe a broader project, um, you know, on the ground, if there's things to offer in terms of, all right, we're going to give you healthcare, but it doesn't stop there because it will get dismantled in the way that uh, it did after, after Debs's passing when we made progress and then the past century has been sort of a reversal out of that. But mm -hmm. he, in a lot of his writings, focuses on especially talking about something that it's funny that people would call Bernie a radical when you look at someone like his hero Debs to be yeah. constantly calling for, uh, you know, an end to wage labor or an end to wage, even calls it wage slavery, which kind of right. goes to this overarching theme of freedom. And I think that co cuts right into that kind of the idea that you can, you can't have democracy without economic freedom, without, yeah. Uh, a, a deeper level of freedom than I guess his battle was more against the way that and it's become more entrenched since his time of the way that a concept of negative freedoms or sort of the way that libertarians approach the idea of freedom is so baked into American culture into the like American psyche yeah. I guess where do you see his place in the battle against uh, that conception of freedom and into something more positive, something more less of, uh, I just want to, I want to be able to have gun duels in the streets and more like they have in New Hampshire, that, that little, uh, and cap thing that they did there and more <laughs> like more of a, uh, I guess, changing minds on, in terms of rather than ceding the ground of freedom to people who would say socialism takes away your freedoms. Uh, yeah. because of whatever libertarian non-aggression principle or something yeah. uh you know i guess what what did he stand for and what is the greater project here in terms of expanding that def definition of freedom out of the grounds of purely negative uh i guess personal liberties yeah no that's a, that's a great question i mean i think today it's like very important on a rhetorical level and just like on ethical level too, but on a rhetorical level, I think it's really important for socialists to talk about the project as one of expanding freedom and democracy. Um, in terms of Debs, um, it's it's hard because it, it was like so long ago that um, the tradition that he was coming out of is, is I mean, it, it, I don't know, it, it's, it's still, it certainly was, this, this sort of stuff that Isaiah Berlin was talking about in that negative and positive freedom it was obviously around at the time, but it was it was a different context. But I, I guess I would say that Debs basically came out of a kind of um, small smaller Republican tradition, and he was like the kind of Alex Urevich has talked to, has written about this, um, and. Um, I'm trying to remember what his book is called, now, but it's a, it's a fantastic book. And it's, it's basically about uh, labor republicanism um, after the civil war and the Knights of Labor, um, you know, the, the, the first major kind of industrial union, um, their, their members and their leadership um, uh, took up this uh, kind of Republican tradition, which which basically the, the 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 core tenet is like freedom is non-domination. So you're not you're not free if you 
Um, you're not free if, if someone, um, uh, say a boss, um, you're not free if, if someone has arbitrary authority over you. So it doesn't matter necessarily if your boss doesn't, if, if your boss like uh, retaliates against you or, um, uh, you know, does something even worse, I don't know. Um, but if, if, you're, if your boss violates your freedom, um, the problem is that, that your boss has that authority in the first place over you. Um, and, the, and it's not necessarily even, you, it's, it's not a question of if you have a benevolent boss or not. The question is whether you have a boss. That's the core problem. Um, so that's, um, that was the sort of position that um, the labor Republicans took. And it was, it was um, something that they expanded basically to the entire economy. And, and they were like, if you have, um, you can't have in, in their, in their eyes. And they, again, they use the, the term wage slavery too. Um, you can't, if you have wage slavery, then you can't have a Republican form of government. You can't have freedom in the workplace um, and you can't have a free society. So that, that was the tradition basically that Debs was espousing to. And he, he sort of melded it with, um, because it was a little later, the, the Knights of Labor um, basically collapsed in the 1880s. Um, so Debs was like, you know, he was very much alive at the time and was a trade union leader at the time, but he hadn't moved towards socialist politics yet. And, and like European socialism hasn't, hadn't filtered over to, I guess it sort of had, but it hadn't filtered over to the U S in the same, um, in the same way. But by the time, like Debs was, by the time Debs became a socialist the following decade, um, he was very much basically merging those traditions. I mean, he was, he was deeply American in, in many ways. And he, he, was, he was very much rooted in that kind of small R Republican tradition, um, the, the most sort of radical end of it that saw freedom as, as, uh, as non-domination. Um, but he also was like pulling from uh, the European socialists too. I mean, he read, um, he read Marx and he read, he read Kotsky really, Kotsky was the big one, but he read various socialists uh, Marxists in, in Europe and, and he sort of melded those traditions and he also like threw in his own other American stuff. I mean, he was a, a he wasn't, um, uh, he wasn't a member of a church, but he threw in, he was like a very religious man. Like he was, when he was in jail, he put up a, like the only picture he had up in the cell was a picture of Jesus. Um, so he threw that into both rhetorically and just the way he thought about the world. So that's a, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that he was, he was certainly not the, the vision of freedom and stuff that he had, um, freedom and democracy was very much at odds with um, kind of classical liberalism um, and kind of negative, negative freedom. Um, but um, I guess I, I, I guess one one other thing I should add. I mean, he, I think in the, in the best tradition of socialists, he. He didn't minimize the the, the need for um, negative freedom too. I mean, he he thought that it was really important that governments didn't have uh, you know power to, to suppress free speech and 
um, to suppress uh, civil liberties. Um, obviously, he was the he was the his negative liberty was certainly taken away when he was thrown in jail um, during World War One. Um, but yeah, he he was certainly part of a radical tradition that saw it uh, as important not only to have negative um, negative freedom, but also say to have the power um, and the, the resources to have to be able to like start your have a newspaper um, and uh, start your own um, you know be able be able to actually uh, uh, make the like free speech meaningful. Um, so that that was um, yeah he 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 was um, he saw the limitations of of negative freedom um, and he was um, but he was also not uh, not one that would um, underplay the need for for that stuff too. I I love your point about making free speech count that that you know you think about I I think. And I, I guess this is probably why some people would take issue with his, you brought up how he stood again, like he was sort of in the min more minority when it came to race, but he also in his writing on it, pretty much said like, if you give economic freedom, the race problem goes away. And I know some people have taken more issue with that fact that I guess sort of, uh, he didn't see it as there has to be reparations, say, but it more, I guess, like once you grant total economic equality and freedom to all races, that that problem just fades into the background, that it that it's more of a non-issue, I guess, um, you know, in terms of that, but yeah. What's up? I think he was wrong about that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, that that was his basic position, yeah. Uh, you did raise the, a point about labor, and I know he co-founded the Industrial Workers of the World um, in Chicago. Uh, in terms of, I guess, the way that he led the movement, um, you know, his sort of just train rides that he would take on his campaigns and stuff, mm -hmm. what role did, did labor play back then in granting everything from, you know, just for people who maybe are less aware, like the 40 hour work week or ending child labor, like the, all, how much did labor drive things that he was able to lead in terms of that movement? And then I guess sort of looking more at today, uh, what does that tell us for the need for the ways that we could rebuild labor now? And, and I guess, is there a way even to build a left project without specifically like trade union or, or just labor union power? Yeah. Uh, well, on the last question, no, <laughs> there's definitely not. Um, like there's, if you, I think if you just look historically, like if without, um, you, like on a theoretical level, you can say like that workers have all this untapped power and if they sort of unite um, they're both, you know, they're both oppressed, but they have this un untapped power. And if they unite, then they can, you know, bring society to a standstill. Um, you could, you can say that on a theoretical level and it's totally true, but also just like looking empirically, like the only way that <laughs> changes really come about is when there's a strong labor movement. Um, and that's actually, I mean, it's even true for even other struggles that are, you know, essential democratic struggles um, are much stronger when they have, when they're rooted in the labor movement, whether it's a civil rights movement 
or uh, the women's movement. Um, because if they, if they don't, they end up, they both end up um, having less power because, you know, a, a kind of strong labor movement uh, is, is still like the, the strongest sort of social force that can push back against the kind of domination of corporate power. Um, and also if it, if it doesn't do that, if it's not, if it's not linked to labor, it's also ends up leaving a lots and lots of people out. So it ends up say with, um, with, a, a anti-racist movement, um, it, it ends up prioritizing say like middle and upper middle classes of that particular segment of society, same with the feminist movement. So if it's not actually rooted in, um, working, the working class, then you have, uh, basically a, a kind of liberal anti-racist project that is, you know, has, it can deliver some good stuff, but doesn't change, um, a lot. It doesn't really fundamentally change a lot of people's lives. Um, like, you know, a black worker, um, certainly has it better off than they did several decades ago, but because basically because, um, uh, I guess, you know, you can call it a variety of things, but basically because the, the kind of push after the, the kind of legalistic gains of the civil rights movement failed and say the poor people's movement that um, Martin Luther King was pushing and, and um, other black activists were pushing for, you know, economic rights that would really change the balance of power in society and help black workers and um, other workers as well. Um, because that that failed, uh, we have the society that we have today. And you know, I live in Chicago, very segregated city. Um, and basically, the, the Chicago we have today, you can you can point to other cities too. But the Chicago we have today um, is uh, the way it is because of the failure of that stuff. And you know, black workers are better off um, in some ways than they were a few decades ago. Absolutely, but. Um, uh, the, the, the centrality of labor kind of speaks to that. Um, because if there was, if, if we were able to, to win that battle, um, then Chicago and other cities like it would have been transformed and not just, um, people in the black middle class, but, uh, black workers, the vast majority of black people in the U S would, would be, um, much better off. Um, so, so yeah, um, and then I guess going back, uh, I think labor was, yeah, labor was central um, during Debs' time, although um, th there were some really, really pitched battles. I think people don't necessarily uh, know how bloody of a history, labor history of the United States has. I mean, it has the bloodiest labor history of any advanced capitalist country. Um, and, uh, you know, lots and lots and lots of workers killed during strikes. And um, really, I mean, this kind of goes back to um, what horrified Debs, just like workers um, or employers having just enormous control over their workplaces and um, just basic kind of the things that we would think about in the political sphere or, or social sphere as like say civil liberties and stuff, the right to free speech and um, the right to, uh, you know, due process or something. Um, none of that is, none of that is uh, uh, sort of recognized in the workplace. And it's, it's certainly, um, uh, certainly strides have been made today 
but to the extent that um, we have uh, that stuff, it's because of because of labor unions. Um, so I'm not sure I totally answered your question, but um, but yeah, it's um, rebuilding the labor movement is the central task of the left. No, I, I, that's totally. I mean, um, even you know, I, I'm I grew up in Chicago, so I feel okay. a little bit of city pride there with everything from you brought up like the bloody history, everything from May Day to uh, the Ludlow massacre in in Colorado with the the coal workers, and you see you know just National Guard being sent in and just gunning down women and children and and stuff like that 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 you have just a, such an aggressive history that that you know whether on our soil or internationally to go kind of lastly to that internationalist tenant um yeah. i guess uh, what drove deb's uh, uh internationalist sort of rhetoric i i know he um you know stood a lot by of course workers of the world unite and and uh marx and everything but what drove kind of his his internationalist approach and then in terms of you know, America has just been so uh, staunchly and and I guess militantly capitalist to stop any domestic thing like with with our the bloodiness of labor history and then you know anti-communist abroad uh, you know uh, campaigns abroad that that have interfered especially in the global south. I guess what would what would a Debsian approach to internationalism look like in terms of? You know what we could do in terms of a project to reverse some of that, and and I guess uh, to to combat the the history of how that's gone. Yeah, well, that's a big question. Um, on the first first part, um, it's hard to know exactly what motivated Debs. I I think um, I think. Uh, he, I mean, he was an egalitarian to his to his bones, and just a small d Democrat to his bones. So I think just the idea of other people outside the U.S. like he didn't draw distinctions between a citizen or a worker in the U.S. and someone elsewhere. So the idea that like they should be treated differently, or they should um, that say the U.S. should be able to to intervene um, and you know, sub and, and treat others uh, elsewhere as like subordinates would have appalled him. So I think on that level, just like an ethical commitment. And then I think also probably once he did get, once he did become a socialist, he was sort of put into this, uh, this sort of environment where, uh, you know, European socialists were the strongest socialist parties at the time. And they, um, they they certainly had their failings, but uh, um, they did. They at the, at the very least, they like did talk about the importance of uniting the working class across across borders. So I think he was. I think it was probably a combination of those two. He was sort of like primed to to like accept that and promulgate that message. Um, and then there was also uh, just people in his sphere that that uh, were you know pushing that message as well. So once he became a socialist, um, 
In terms of what that looks like today, I mean, it's it's hard to say beyond a, a, a broad, like the the general vision is very hard. It was very easy to sketch out. It's like much harder to think about um, how actually to, to win that sort of thing. And I think like people, um, people like Daniel Bessner and some other people are thinking more about like a foreign policy for the left. And I think that's really, really crucial because, um, you know, there has been, we, I mean, we could use more of this thinking everywhere um, in, in every sphere, whether it's the economic sphere or the, the household or what types of policies and arrangements and structures we could actually sort of use to um, instantiate kind of socialist values. Um, but uh, I think foreign policy is one that's really been kind of neglected. And other than, um, I think actually I'm cribbing from Daniel Besner again here, but like, I think he was saying the other day, something like for a long time, like the left's platform has basically just been like US out of, you know, so-and-so like US needs to get out of Iraq. US needs to get out of blah, blah, blah. And obviously, yeah, like, we need to stop fighting fighting aggressive wars that are killing people and um, um, in the US and uh, um, you know harming people uh, troops that come back as well um, and killing people abroad. We need to we need to end that stuff, um, but we need something more than that. Um, like we need a, a, a broader vision than that. Because I, I I know he was talking. Uh, I think it was with. Uh, Derek Davison with foreign exchanges. Yeah. They were they were talking yeah. about you know the idea that that foreign policy. It's like okay, let's get out of Iraq or something. But then the struggle is the question of something like Rwanda. What do you do when you do want to get involved? When intervention it does seem kind of intuitive, can you still can you have can you dismantle empire while still? Uh, where do you draw that line in terms of do we stop genocide when we see it and then does that open that door for empire anyway and yeah. i i think that that raises a lot of hard conflicts that i'm i'm no too little about foreign policy but but i i think that's that's such an important thing to approach in terms of uh you know, righting some of the wrongs that, that at least getting our boot off the neck of any country that wants to have its own project. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that is that at the very least. And that's something that like, even if Sanders was elected, he could have done just the kind of first do no harm principle uh, you could, you could put into place very quickly. Um, and just, you know, closing, closing down military bases and, um, and just pulling troops out of a lot of a lot of places. Um, I think, uh, I mean, so I, I guess I should say like the general vision is just one that, the general vision is one of, uh, of, work, of, of workers across countries. Well, I guess I'm trying to think what, how Debs put it. I, I think Debs says something like we need a cooperative commonwealth, but we also need an, an international commonwealth. Um, I think he, he, he basically thought that you just need a uh, democracy across countries too. So you, you don't, you don't, the idea of like a global hegemon would be, is like anathema to him. Um, that's, that's not something that is, it's like obviously undemocratic 
And um, so, yeah, like a, for him, it, it'd just be kind of equality across, across countries. And then, and, but in terms of like the US, like, I think, I think I might've mentioned a few things in that piece. Um, I think the US needs to like, I think I, the US needs to transfer lots and lots of resources and technology to the global South, especially around climate change stuff. Um, but also just around general development. I mean, the, the, the South, the global South doesn't have to industrialize in the brutal way that, um, that the US and other countries did, um, and the Soviet Union did as well um, in a very obviously shorter, shorter time period, but basically just compressed all of the brutality of, of industrialization into you know, a decade or two. Um, but the global South doesn't need to do that. That's not like a technical necessity, um, but uh, obviously the kind of balance of power would need to change um, it, and in, uh, in society or in, in the world. So uh, the, the, uh, the sort of objective of international relations isn't to like subordinate uh, other countries in the way that it is today. Um, and and um, instead like start to, um, you know, assist other countries to bring them up to a level of development um, uh, that, they, that they are not today. So I think that's important. Um, that plus just like, yeah, getting the boot off of people next, people's necks because giving people uh, more room to like actually fight their own governments if they're like living in, you know, if there's an authoritarian government, um, it, it's much better for uh, um, people to fight their own battles um, and for, you know, people on the left here to offer solidarity abroad, but not to look to the kind of leviathan of the U.S. government um, to like deliver democracy, because that's obviously that the track record of that is terrible. Um, and it's uh, um, just, yeah, it's not it's not the not, it's not going to be the way to the, U, the U.S. like Defense Department and the State Department are not going to create a more democratic world. All right, that just about does it for today's episode of Social Point. I'd like to thank Sean again so, so much for coming on. It was so kind of him to take the time to do that interview. I would encourage everybody to check him out on Twitter at Sean Goody, uh, Sean with a W, G-U-D-E, and find me on Twitter and Instagram at Social Point Pod. Uh, we're a week out from the election now, a little bit more, but uh, if you haven't voted yet, go vote. Um, hold on, hang in there, we're almost done. Uh, you know, just a couple more days and, and we're out of this. So, well, not out of it, but, but a new fight starts, hopefully. So, please take care of yourselves, everybody. If you get a chance, take a break, take a breath. I know things are running high right now. I think everyone's kind of wearing down. So, just if you get a chance to go offline and step back and just take a break, take a breath, uh, that's really important right now. So, I hope everybody's taking care of themselves. Everybody stay well out there. And I will see you guys next week.